From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, working with tribes to create energy and justice, the coming net zero backlash, a former NASA code slinger creates Earth Hacks, and what you need to know to get your next sustainability job. You're hired this week on 350. It's March 5th, 2021. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as she thaws out in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. I heard what you did there. With I like the sound of your hired. I love the idea that people are finding jobs and that the economy is growing and that we have spring is coming and things are thawing. It's awesome. Yes, it's a beautiful week here in lovely Midland Park, New Jersey. How about there yes. in Oakland, California? It's been 60 and, and pretty sunny, and it's going to be that way for quite a while. Uh, good news, it's 60 and sunny. Bad news, there's no rain. Mm. But can I tell you the highlight of my week? What was the highlight of your week? I got my second shot. <gasps> oh, my goodness. I, didn't even, I don't even think I realized you had your first one, but <laughs> good on you. That's awesome. That's I great. Am, uh, well, I'll be fully vaccinated in a week or so, and it takes effect. But yeah, and- it's not going to change much. I'm, I'm, you know, touching my face more, <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm, I'll, okay. I won't be hugging strangers anytime soon, but I, but uh, it does open up life and, it, and it's just, uh, it's psychologically uh, mm-hmm. uh, more than anything um, healing, I think. And so anyway, uh, it, it's one of the very, very, very few benefits of being an old guy mm. um, these days, but uh, it, it, I, opportunity came up and I, I, I grabbed it. So here Good I am. Good on you. Well, congratulations on that. Um, you've been very busy. We've both been very busy. But I got to ask you, because I'm really curious and haven't been spending that much time thinking about it. How's the Greenfin program coming? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, it's it's coming along amazingly. This is the event we'll be having in the middle of April, April 13th, 14th, virtual, of course, called Greenfin 21. And um, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, environmental social governance data between investors and, and companies. And we'll talk about the new range of, of uh, sustainable uh, finance tools, uh, green bonds and sustainability linked loans. We're talking about how we finance the transition to this uh clean, equitable, just economy. And we've got some some great speakers. We've got the uh, head of sustainable finance group at Goldman Sachs, the head of sustainability at NASDAQ. We have uh, the chief uh, financial officer from Johnson Controls, a uh, big tech company, uh, heating and air conditioning realm, and um, uh, the head of ESG engagement for Amazon and for Verizon and uh, some independent board members because we'll be talking about what does it take to have uh, uh, for a climate smart board. And we're going to have a conversation with uh, two senior people from BlackRock, uh, including their uh, global head of corporate strategy, about how they're seeing this moment and on and on. So, yeah, um, I, I encourage you to go go check it out. Uh, you can find it easily from the events tab on the greenbiz.com homepage. 
but yeah, I, I know you'll be there as you always are, Heather, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Yeah, I've just been a little distracted because I have my third annual badass list publishing next Monday, and I'm just buttoning that one up, and so I've just been a little focused and head down on that one. So we'll talk about that list next week, I'm sure. But which is always just a great, great list. So you've got you'll be naming 25 more new badass women. Any. Any teasers? Any teasers? Oh, boy. I think I'm going to save the big reveal for Monday, but I, I will tell you it is an incredibly diverse list. And, and the exciting thing is it wasn't that hard. So, yeah, we'll talk about it next week. What do you want to talk about right now, though? We'll be looking ahead to that on Monday. But for now, let's look back to the Week in Review. So the first piece I'd like to bring up is a article penned by one of our former GreenBiz staffers, Shandine Cedar, and she looked into uh, a deal that was struck about three years ago um, and that we reported on, on three years ago between Apex, the uh, renewable energy developer, and, and the Ocheti Sakowin Lakota tribes in North Dakota and South Dakota. Um, they're working on a wind project that is on tribal lands. And the, the significance of this, this deal was, as we reported a few years ago, was that they created a joint venture to do this, one that would really benefit the tribes that are involved with it. And um, I basically was wondering what, what had gone on with this. So I asked Shandine to, to investigate and, and provide an update, which is what, what she does with this article. The uh, good news is that the project is still very much underway. The bad news is it's taken a little bit longer than they anticipated to get it off the ground, if you will, uh, partly because of some financing concerns, just to figuring out like the, the the actual mechanisms that would support it, but um, but also because the interconnections in this particular region um, of the grid uh, is is pretty active, and so it took them a while to get in line for uh, for getting this thing to to be uh, attached to the grid. So I love this piece because it really looks at the opportunity that indigenous people can find in, in being allowed to have a role and a voice in developing their natural resources. So, yeah, that's the, what did you think of this piece? Well, I, first of all, I think it's important to point out that Sean Dean is Navajo, a uh, member of that tribe, and uh, left us much to our disappointment to go travel for a year at the she picked 2020 to be out of the United States. Um, how prescient was she? Lucky her. And um, <laughs> in New Zealand, no <laughs> New Zealand, less. Yes, you really nailed that. <laughs> and um, and has been looking at this uh, for a while. This the what is the relationship? She wrote a piece about uh, the XL pipeline and from the native perspective. And and I think this is really interesting. We we also ran a piece you may recall Heather back in May by Danny Kennedy, the CEO of New Energy Nexus called How the Navajo Got Their Day in the Sun uh, about uh, another energy project that was put together in partnership with the Navajo Nation. And in both of these cases, it really speaks to the partnership that energy companies are, are starting to form with Native tribes uh, in the U.S. and the, in the First Nation peoples in, in Canada as well on how do you take advantage of the land that they have to for energy and do it in a way that brings 
uh, first of all, respect and, and, and also, of course, uh, revenue to those people in a way that allow them to improve their qualities of life. And uh, so, so this is a, a truly, uh, you know, maybe groundbreaking. I mean, this is not the first of this uh, ilk, uh, but there will be, there will, we're just sort of getting going on this. Um, and I think this is just mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. exciting to see. Uh, and Shandine goes at some length, uh, into some length as Danny did with his piece, and we'll link to that as well. What are the mechanics of this? And what did it take to do this? And what has been the response of the indigenous communities in the Dakotas around this? I think that's really interesting. And, and of course, the lessons here are not simply limited to indigenous tribes in, in North America, but also to uh, communities of color around uh, the world. Yeah, indeed. The power authority that the tribes um, own is is the, is the majority owner. And I think that was instrumental in making sure that they could have their say and that it was benefiting them and not someone else. So it's a great, it's a great piece of work and I'd love to see it repeated elsewhere. Great. Well, let's turn to the net zero economy. And uh, there's two pieces we published this week. Um, We'll get to the second one in a minute. But the first one is about financing. Going back to Greenfin is how how do we measure and address the climate risk for banks um, as they increasingly lean into uh, financing the the renewable energy and, and the many other components that it takes for a a uh, net zero decarbonized economy. Um, this comes from uh, Blair Bateson and Dan Sicardi at Ceres, which has been spending a lot of time uh, in, in looking at the financial community and their relationship to a whole range of things as it relates to sustainability, but primarily the net zero economy these days, since that's so much of, of the focus. And they, they challenge the banks that, that are not necessarily thinking uh, around the time horizons that banks typically do, which is about five years uh, in the investments and loans uh, that, that they make. So part of it is about adopting 10-year time horizons uh, for risk management, planning their financial, uh, their financing plans uh, in longer horizons as well. And one of the keys here is, is how do you rethink risk? Um, because banks are all about risk. That's how they price their products, their loans, and and, and other things. And uh, looking at risk through a new lens is really a key part of this. Um, and then what's the relationship between banking and the policy community in terms of you know what should banks be doing to uh, help promote policies that undergird the net zero economy or the decarbonized economy or whatever we end up calling this and so I think there's just a lot of interesting food for thought here. And it's not simply a matter of a company saying we're committed to net zero and we're going to do these 10 things uh, or, or, or a city or a state or a nation um, because the money that's required uh, to finance these things comes with many strings attached. And sometimes those things do not necessarily support uh, the goals of a net zero economy. Mm. Yeah. And I think one of the things that really struck me for this piece, because it is, it is very prescriptive, it gives some really good, I think, advice and recommendations to banking executives to think about the future of the relationships that they're forging. And I think one of the things that really struck me was 
I believe there's a tendency to look at short-term loans, you know, oh, this loan's only a few years. Uh, we don't really have to, um, you know, vet it for the same climate risks because it's it's not over the long-term horizon. But the point that that they make very effectively here is that as we see banks looking to towards relationships, right? Like a client, that that loan might be the first time, but then there's going to be another and another and another. So it's it's important to engage and think about the long term right at the beginning. I think that that was like one of those little ahas for me. I thought, oh yeah, sure, it's only a three you know year long loan, but hey, you know they're going to repeat that. 30 times, you know, so, so suddenly it's, you know, a 90 year, I mean, I'm being facetious, but, but in any event, I think that was one of the ahas for me is, is the relationships that get forged and what you talk, what you say at the beginning of that relationship, you don't want to change the rules like in the midstream, like, oh yeah, you did this under these terms now, but oh, next time you have to be, we have to be stricter and stricter and stricter. I don't know. So I loved it. I thought it was a great piece. Um, I would like to talk about something you wrote this week, too, because <laughs> I love it. It's something I've been wanting to, to say a little bit myself, but it's the coming net zero backlash. Um, and I'll admit it, I get really excited about net zero commitments because um, I just get excited about things and I love hearing about people taking action. However, we need the... Uh, the skeptic meter to be turned up uh, a little bit and really to be probing more deeply into some of these pledges. And I think you do a great job of, of broaching that discussion in this column. So I want to know, first of all, what were you thinking <laughs> when, when you wrote that headline? What, what inspired you to write this particular piece? Yeah, I guess I had the skeptometer uh, dialed up to 10 on this one. No, I mean, net zero has just become a thing or maybe even the thing in sustainability these days. Hundreds of companies, uh, city, state governments, uh, President Biden is talking about perhaps jointly with Canada creating some net zero goals. Everybody's talking about net zero. And of course, this is net zero carbon emissions to the atmosphere, uh, usually by 2050. Sometimes they're, they're sooner. And you know, it's easy to say, really, really hard to do. And and the idea, you know, this is a, in, in some ways, this is simple arithmetic that you have uh, 100 units of, of carbon that you emit, then you have to reduce it by 100 somehow. And obviously, the fewer you emit, the fewer you have to offset somehow. But the challenge here is that companies seem to be leaning way more into the net part and not as much into the zero part. Let me explain what that means. The net part is how do you, uh, like I said, offset what you do emit. Um, and that's, you know, planting trees and all the things that we, we, we talk about. And some of those are very controversial. And some of those, there's lots of challenges with offsets as we've discussed in the past and no doubt we'll revisit again. But not necessarily the companies aren't spending as much time talking about how do they emit less in the first place to absolute reductions to their to their emissions. And that's the challenge. So, you know, it's the old if, you know, you can emit as much as you want because you're writing a check to offset them. Well, that's not going to help the planet. That's simply not going to work. And so the activist community is, is catching on to this and they're looking at the net zero commitments and they're saying, uh, on one hand, yay, this is good. This is obviously, uh, these are ambitious, aspirational, even audacious goals, usually made at the highest organizational levels to, you know, to get to zero uh, impact on the, on the planet, on, on, the, uh, on the climate. 
But the way companies are doing that are simply really, it's a lot of it is window dressing. And so, um, you know, I, I, I recite a, a quote, a, a report from the Friends of the Earth International, which came out recently that called Net Zero a smokescreen, a conveniently invented concept that is both dangerous and problematic because of how effectively it hides in action. Call that hyperbole or not. Uh, but the point is, is that there's a lot of concern now about not just that you're making a net zero commitment, but what are you actually doing and how much are you really going to be reducing emissions, what the planet cares about versus offsetting them, what your PR department may care about. And uh, I predict that there will be a backlash that it's become such a big thing with so little accountability that uh, activists will find this as an area ripe for attacking companies, naming and shaming as they are so good at doing. Yeah, I think that um, your point about the accountability is is very well taken. We've been, I think we, the journalism community, has been remiss in the past in not being more on some of these companies for their earlier commitments, right? So they put out these massive reports and they're so big and overwhelming that you you unless you sift through hundreds of pages in some cases, you can't really see what the true progress is unless you really invest the time and the research into figuring that out. And so it really underscores the importance of understanding the nuances of what's being reported and how it's being reported and what the actual words are. And, you know, I, I know I look a lot more carefully about at the ex specific statements now that are in the, especially in the, the, the sustainability reports, not necessarily a press releases. Um, I do admit to being still happy at least that it is getting attention at the highest organizational level, which is what you said, because that for some, this particular commitment just seems to have more CEOs involved than any other commitment ever before. And I do like that because it means that it's someone somewhere down the line is, is going to be accountable and it is going to be the CEO. So when this backlash does come, it's not going to be something they can hide from, um, which I like. So, so at least the right people are accountable. Not, not that the CSO isn't the right person, but more right people are accountable. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And make no mistake, these net zero commitments are really, really important and impressive in, in many ways that companies are, are making these uh, commitments that they honestly don't know how they're going to get to yet. I mean, they have ideas, but they don't necessarily have a clear roadmap for um, and and so those are critically important, and it's very exciting that these that they're even talking in these terms. I mean, I remember, I don't know, five or ten years ago when the goal was eighty by fifty, you know, eighty percent reduction by twenty fifty, and even that seemed just no. There's no way we can get there. Now we're talking zero, uh, which is you know, and of course that last twenty percent is always the hardest, and the eighty twenty rule, and so. It's a really important thing, and I think it's because of that importance that the activist community, the advocacy community, are, are starting to to uh, pay attention and starting to be vocal on this. And there will be, you know, we'll start to see some frameworks. The Science-Based Targets Initiative is proposing a framework mm -hmm. for uh, science-based net zero target setting, and there's going to be a number of other things coming out that I think will start to bring some order to this uh, still wild west uh, arena. But 
I think the term that I'll just introduce a new term that I learned about, which is uh, at least from the activists are talking about real zero. Uh, yeah. Not, uh, not yep. fake zero. They say, often say mm-hmm. real zero. In fact, uh, <laughs> last year in, in Davos at the uh, World Economic Forum meeting, uh, Greta Thunberg uh, spoke to them and, and talked about, you know, we don't need a low carbon economy. We need to lower carbon emissions and uh, our emissions have to stop if we have a chance to stay below the 1.5 degree target. Um, and it, she said, we must forget about net zero we need real zero. So more to come on that from not just her, but lots of others. Yeah, including, I'm going to do a shameless plug, our event this summer focused on what what else? Net zero. Verge net Um, zero. Verge net zero. And it's exciting because it's controversial, (laughs) which means it's going to be a great event. (laughs) July 27th, 28th, it's going to be online. And again, you can go to greenbiz.com slash events and you can learn about that. Greenfin and the six events we're doing, all five more this year, the six events we, we will be doing this year in 2021. I'm Shauna Rappaport, Vice President and Executive Director of Verge with Green Biz Group. I am so pleased to be speaking today with Sanjana Paul, a 23-year-old scientist, electrical engineer, and environmental activist who is on a mission. Yes, she's worked at NASA, but her mission isn't to explore the outer edges of our solar system. Instead, it's to harness the full power of technology and the ingenuity of young people to solve our most pressing environmental challenges right here on Earth. In addition to formerly working as a junior atmospheric science software developer at NASA and currently working as a researcher at MIT, Sanjana is the founder and executive director of EarthHacks, an organization that hosts hackathons for college students to combat the climate crisis. Sanjana, I am so excited to talk technology, innovation, climate solutions, and environmental justice with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me here. So before we get into the EarthHacks mission, let's start with your own passion for innovation. What technologies are you personally most excited about or inventions are you most proud of? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, it's it's a I think it's not an easy question uh, because the answer changes every few months because the technology landscape is changing so rapidly. Um, you know, and it's exciting to kind of see the evolution of technology. You know, in in just the past century alone, right? Because technology that we build is reflective of the society that we live in, and you can see that there's a lot of different trends going in a lot of different places. So I think I'll have to maybe stick with a classic, uh, you know, and say that harnessing the photoelectric effect uh, to be able to create solar panels has really set us down a trajectory to hopefully be able to kind of continue the trend of being a planet powered by the sun just in our own way and kind of in a way that supports a growing and a thriving society. And you've also following up on the invention piece, you also have some inventions of your own. Can you speak to that briefly? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've uh, been fortunate to work on, you know, a lot of different hardware prototyping projects. um, And there are a couple, I think, that I'm very proud to have been involved with. One is what's now the Sentinel project at Conservation X Labs, uh, which is a next-gen 
camera trap uh, for wildlife conservation that, uh, you know, harnesses the power of, um, you know, just all of the new technology that we're working with, um, artificial intelligence to kind of be able to assist uh, wildlife conservationists in their really tough work. Another one is uh, a robot that I created uh, with a partner of mine called Floaty Boy, um, which is an acronym. I, I am embarrassed to say that I don't remember exactly the order of what the acronym is, um, but it was a <laughs> robot that was able to um, capture uh, marine plastic debris in coastal areas uh, using visual identification. Amazing. Amazing. So you founded your organization Earth Hacks in 2018 to really leverage the power of the hackathon in innovation model in direct service of climate education and solutions. Talk a, talk a little bit about what you what set you on this journey. Yeah, definitely. So um, I studied electrical engineering and physics when I was in school. And electrical engineers, I think not too many people know, actually have to be very proficient in coding in a few different languages. And so I used to go to hackathons originally as a way to just boost my coding skills. You know, I wanted to kind of supplement what I was learning in school. I wanted to learn new languages, new techniques. And I wanted to do it in kind of like a friendly educational environment where I didn't have to worry about a grade and I could focus on what I wanted to get out of it. But when I'd go to these hackathons, you know, I was kind of stunned because the problems that they presented there seemed completely out of touch with, you know, the reality that we were living in. They seemed like things only third-year computer science majors would care of, not even, not even third-year electrical engineering majors. So I started to wonder, you know, if hackathons are a place that all of these really smart people come to, you know, they essentially give up their whole weekends to work on problems, to teach each other, to learn from each other, to engage in friendly competition. Why are we not presenting societally relevant problems? And why are we not presenting really time-sensitive problems in including climate problems, which is perhaps the most time sensitive issue we have ever faced as a species. And so, you know, I got a group of my friends together and I repeated that to them and thankfully they agreed. So we decided that, hey, let's have environmental hackathons. Let's see if people come. Let's see if they find them to be a good space to kind of engage with these environmental issues, learn about them and actually start imagining what we can do about them. And it kind of spiraled from there. We started out one hackathon in Richmond, Virginia. We started, uh, you know, getting contacted by students across the country um, and eventually across the world. And so we decided to form an organization around it. And uh, now we're fortunate to have worked with people from every inhabited continent on the planet um, on hackathons ranging from creating urban heat island maps uh, to creating better tools for conservationists working with endangered species. You know, the Earth Hacks model, you're, you're really working to ensure that the great ideas that come out of these hackathons, they don't just get generated, but they're actually implemented. So what are some of the real world projects that have come out of them so far? That's a great question. And actually, before I dive into it, because this is something I could talk about for, for days, um, you know, I'll just say that uh, another really great part of that is that nothing is really lost at these hackathons, right? Even if every single project doesn't come out as, you know, the, the next coolest startup or like, you know, the next cool invention, we're still fortunate that, you know, this is an educational opportunity and students still walk away learning more about these issues and engaging with them more closely than they did before the event. But that being said, we've seen some really amazing projects come out and they've been put to work in really interesting ways. So what I mentioned about urban heat island maps, uh, we collaborated with um, a startup called Urban Canopy and with scientists from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab uh, to work with uh, data from a satellite, uh, from an instrument they have called EcoStress, which is on the International Space Station, uh, to create the world's first public map of urban heat islands. So we basically gave students data Right. And we said, pick a city and just plot the land surface temperature and put it on a map. Right. This will tell us where urban heat is most concentrated. We can hand this 
information over to city planners, over to researchers, and hopefully this can guide policy so that people have to deal less with extreme heat. Um, you know, another thing is um, on the endangered species conservation, uh, we were able to work with a bunch of nonprofit organizations who deal with vaquita conservation. Vaquitas are a very endangered porpoise who live in the uh, Sea of Cortez. Um, and we we're able to work with them on creating technical tools uh, for their teams to be able to better track these animals and some of the issues surrounding them. Uh, we were able to engage with law students to actually draft a white paper, which is actually going to go public hopefully soon and give better recommendations to lawmakers on how to deal with wildlife crime. Um, and we have a public outreach campaign because no one's going to do anything about endangered species if they don't know about them. So those are just a couple and we're really hoping to see um, you know, more support for our projects as we continue to go forward and everything ranging from you know, better educational opportunities, urban farming projects, um, you know, stuff like that. So, so incredible. Um, so you talked a little bit about sort of urban and city life. We talked about vaquitas, one of my favorite marine creatures. I wanna shift now and talk a little bit about the intersection of tech, climate and social issues, which I know are really important to you personally. You know, what are what are your aspirations for how Earth Hacks and really the tech industry more broadly can work to advance environmental justice? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, I think for a long time, the environmental movement as a whole was really focused on environmental issues as maybe kind of abstract, maybe kind of separate from us, right? Maybe they affect species in far off places. Maybe they affect, you know, natural landmarks that we marvel at their beauty, but we've never seen them in person. Uh, but fundamentally, the climate crisis is about people right? It's about our lives. It's about whether or not we're going to have the ability to live happy, healthy lives and stuff like that. And so because of that, you know, the climate crisis is inherently tied into, you know, social justice problems and social crises. And um, so I think that taking, um, you know, a more complete view of the climate crisis, first, is just the right thing to do. Um, second, it's a practical thing to do. You know, if we ignore a huge chunk of this problem and how it's actually playing out, we're not going to be able to meaningfully solve it. But I I think it needs to become instead of kind of an add-on for the tech industry specifically and for I think um, you know the movement as a whole instead of having you know social racial gender equality as kind of this you know extra thing that's especially amazing to do it really needs to become integrated into kind of any core actions that we take and be included in you know decision making and processes and planning from the very start because if we don't work to weed out these issues now uh, we're not going to be able to when we're overwhelmed by changing temperatures and extreme storms. So I think that making sure that, you know, we kind of shift the, the cultural window of where these conversations happen and make sure that they happen everywhere all the time. And that even though they can be uncomfortable conversations, have the understanding that they have to happen and we have to stop this from getting worse. Beautifully said. Thank you. I want to close on a bit of a kind of a call to action note. I mean, you're speaking to an audience of business leaders. What kind of support can the private sector provide to you and, and to Earth Hacks or to other young technologists who are committed to solving environmental challenges, either as, as corporate partners or as intergenerational allies? 
Absolutely. I mean, first, I love the phrase intergenerational allies. And I think that's probably the biggest one, right? The single biggest thing that, you know, business leaders today can do to help young people with aspirations is take drastic action on climate issues so that we have the time and space to grow up and to be business leaders and to continue to engage. Um, another thing, <laughs> which is, you know, maybe a smaller step that everyone can take is to engage. You know, all of the students we work with at our hackathons are always looking for more opportunities. They're looking for people to learn from. They're looking for people to come and speak at their events, to mentor. They're looking for places to work that are doing good work and sustainability. So just engaging with us, just reaching out and saying, hey, we'd like to support you in some way, shape or form. You know, even if it's just coming and giving a seminar on how you can incorporate zero waste practices into your organization, that's hugely meaningful to us. There are so many different ways to get involved, but it's always going to start with just reaching out. Well, Sanjana, I'm I'm so grateful for your time, your perspective to learn a little bit about your own creations, the mission and vision and impact in just two and a half years so far of, of Earth Hacks. This is definitely just the beginning of the Green Biz community, hearing from you and, and learning about your work. I'm so excited to see where you take all of this and most importantly, excited about some uh, potential collaboration. So thank you again so much for your time, Sanjana. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for tuning in. It's Deanna Anderson, Associate Editor at Green Biz, and I'm here with Shannon Howd, who is the Managing Director of Walk of Life Coaching. Howd has 20 years of experience as a recruiter and a coach, and is the author of a recently released book titled Good Work, How to Build a Career That Makes a Difference in the World. She's also been contributing to the Green Biz site since 2013. Shannon, thanks for coming on Green Biz 350. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's dive in. I'm curious um, if you can share how careers in corporate social responsibility, sustainability, and impact investing have kind of changed over the years. Yeah, quite considerably. Um, 20 years ago when I got my master's in business in Arizona, that was in 2002, there weren't even master's programs yet with the word sustainability or corporate responsibility in them. So that's one big change. Um, and I think that the job market also is reflecting that, of course, that now you go on to LinkedIn or Indeed and you see hundreds of jobs using these keywords that we, we search for, whether it's sustainability, social impact, corporate responsibility, uh, impact investing. I always say for those looking to make a change into this space or to move within it, to always make sure that your semantics are matching your audience. So we're now talking about, yes, sustainable business. We might be calling it social impact. We might be calling it resilience, circularity. ESG is a, is a new, well, relatively new term that's gotten a lot of traction since Larry Fink of, of BlackRock wrote his letter to CEOs last year. and. Um, we also are hearing a lot more about diversity and inclusion, well-being, human rights. There's so much evolving so quickly in this space. And so I think that there's just opportunity after opportunity for careers and for people wanting to work as change makers in this space. Yeah. So you you mentioned um, increased <laughs> uh, attention on diversity and inclusion. And I'm curious, and I feel like it's been even more so over the last year that increased intent attention. 
And also, like, the COVID-19 pandemic has been with us for almost a year at this point. Um, and there's been, like, a creased, increased visibility of the impacts of climate change. Like, for example, the wildfires on the West Coast in the U.S. last year were raging pretty wildly. I'm curious about, like, how all those things have kind of impacted the field, if at all. Mm. I think they've impacted it hugely. I mean, the growth I've seen in my my own business over the, the the COVID year has just been amazing. And it's because I think, honestly, we've all had a chance to kind of pause and breathe and go inward and reflect on who we are as individuals, who we are in our solidarity communities, you know, who we are um, as change makers and what is our purpose and potential to shape change in the world. So I think a lot of people have just woken up individually to really wanting to have a life with purpose and to make their jobs or their careers reflect that. So I think that's on the individual basis. There's just been a a real self-awareness happening at a deeper level because we've had more time, um, less commuting and and less um, noise in, in some ways during lockdown. Um, and then as a mar- in a market perspective, in a more macro perspective, I mean, you can look on any newspaper anywhere in the world now and climate change or something about the green agenda or sustainability is on the front page. And that just wasn't the case five, even 10 years ago. So um, I think what we're seeing shift mostly is that the financial markets and the investment community has woken up. They now have enough proof in financial returns in the markets to be able to justify prioritizing things like ESG in their investment portfolios and their investment strategies. And that has been really a goal of all of ours for the last 20 years is to get that financial proof that this is not just an add-on agenda, but this is actually crucial to building sustainable organizations and movements. So I think what you're seeing now, too, is that a lot of the uh, companies, especially on Wall Street, are committing to net zero 2030. They're all getting these strategies. They're coming out pretty much daily if you're watching the news around that. Um, And then you've also got a huge shift in terms of social justice and diversity and inclusion. And again, there's been like a 50 percent increase now in companies prioritizing roles and jobs and director level um, prioritization really around the diversity, equity and inclusion space, knowing now that that's crucial as well in terms of building a a workforce for the future. So it's a really positive time in some ways, despite all of the bad news and all of the crises that are happening globally. I think it's about the fact that we're waking up as individuals, the markets are waking up to this and the value of, of these, these issues. Um, and we're seeing this more collectively as a community and how we actually can shape change if we do it together in a collective uh, collective way. Yeah, um, I feel like you kind of started speaking to this spec, this question that I have um, with regard to mentioning ESG and the increased like diversity and inclusion work that companies are doing. But I'm curious if there's any other like trends or opportunities uh, that you're seeing that people who are interested in entering the sustainability field um, can kind of take advantage of right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um 
if you follow some of Green Biz's reports over the years, there's always this shift between uh, do we want generalists or we, do we want specialists? Um, and meaning, do you need to have a specialism around a specific sustainability issue like you know, renewables or carbon or human rights um, or diversity and inclusion, for instance, versus could you just be a generalist and kind of have a little bit of a knowledge across all the issues um, and really be more focused on um, uh, maybe a high level um, overview of that. And so I think that's a, an opportunity for people that really want to get granular about a specific issue. There's room for that. We need specialists. We need people with the technical skills in specific issue areas. And we also need generalists. So if you're not a specialist in a specific issue area, that's okay too, because you might have a broader understanding of both social and environmental impact issues, but you're going to be leading from a generalist hat, so to speak, which means you'll be doing things like strategy or reporting, and that would be across all the issues. So I think that's a real opportunity for people wanting to shift in the industry, but also break into it, um, being able to really articulate what it is they're great at and what they love doing, and then there is a space in the market for you. And I think that's um, hugely shifted from 10 years ago where um, it was a lot harder to break in. You had to really be a specialist in a specific area. The other place I see opportunity is around something called intrapreneurship and innovation. And this is starting to merge and uh, nicely with the sustainability agenda in that Organizations, whether they're nonprofits, uh, government even, and for-profit organizations, are really looking for people that are going to come in and be able to shape scalable change. This is really a people agenda, and we have to get creative about how we're going to shift mindsets, build buy-in, um, and, and really grow for the future and help our organizations to prepare for how they're going to be sustainable in the future. And that requires really a mindset of entrepreneurship or having that entrepreneurial spirit, but within an organization to start something new, to, to create a new initiative, to be innovative. And so I think that's another space where um, if you have that drive or that energy, or even if you are an entrepreneur, you can translate that very nicely into a skill set that an organization will value. So I want to shift gears a bit and talk specifically about your book um, that came out recently, um, Good Work, How to Build a Career That Makes a Difference in the World. I'm curious about how you decided to write the book and also like why right now is the right time for it. Mm. Well, I don't know that I chose right now because it was actually <laughs> supposed to publish in 2020, but because of COVID, we put it off six months. But actually, I think it's a really good good time because, again, a lot of us are self-reflecting and looking for how we can reinvent ourselves, how we can be a part of this movement to shape positive change. So I think there's a hunger, a thirst for this kind of content right now that maybe wouldn't have existed two years ago even. Uh, so I feel very fortunate that it, the timing was right in the end. Um, I decided to write this book because I've been running a coaching program for a curriculum, basically, for more than 10 years 
to break down the process for someone wanting to make a move uh, in their career or job in the sustainability or impact space. And so what I did in 2017 was converted that into an online course. And I thought, hmm, you know, I bet you there's people across the world in developing countries and other parts of the world that might not be able to still even afford the online course. I want to be able to, to, to reach more people that maybe are a little bit more financially um, restricted. So I said, well, let's get it into a book. Let's get it to be something between someone's hands. They can hold on to it. They can reference it. And I wanted it to be a very practical tool. So it's it's really packed with a lot of the content I've been writing about for the past 10 years on my social media channels. Um, everything from tools and specific recruiter tips and perspectives to market analysis to keywords to case studies and um, stories from individuals that I've worked with over the years. So it's really um, a way to get all of my content and advice and intel basically out into the market at a low price point. One of the things that my colleague Joe McCower said uh, during your launch event was like, a lot of people come to him for advice about um, careers and sustainability, and he's going to start pointing people uh, to your book because it's really a guidebook for folks. Um, and one of the steps that's included in the book is that being a part of a value-based organization um, is a two-way street. And it talks about like values. And I'm curious about like why it's important when people are trying to think about their career, why it's important to get clear about their values. Mm. That's a great question. I think it's, it's really, there's two sides to this. Um, when I talk about values for a job seeker, I, I help them get clear about what their own values are, are in the context of who they want to work with. So meaning um, that if we are clear, let's say, on what our own personal top five values are, we can then articulate those to a future employer and say, these are so important to me that you have to be able, as an organization, give me these values or align with these values, or I'm not going to be able to thrive and be happy in this context. So I think it's a way to really get articulating around what is it we individually want from the context in which we work. And as you might know, um, the, the quote that we don't quit a job, we quit a boss. Um, and I think that's becoming almost now about we don't quit a we don't we don't quit a job, we quit a culture, an organizational culture. And I think that that alignment is so crucial to a being able to unleash our individual potential to make a difference, but also in our own in happiness on a day-to-day -day basis, our own personal well-being. And we'll be able to then deliver better for the organization if we are values aligned with not only the organization, but their mission, the team that we're working on, and the people on our team, the boss specifically as well. So I think it's more than just throwing some key words around. It's really about doing your due diligence about what is the reality of the culture that you're going to be stepping into. Um, and one thing I always suggest is people say, well, how do you know? How can you find that out in an interview? And I always say, call ex-employees. So before you accept a job, always go and talk to people that don't work there anymore 
and find out the real story because they're probably more willing to tell you the full truth about what is the culture really like. So that's one reason I think that the values um, in the context of job seeking is so important. And the other reason is as a job seeker and a candidate for roles, we as recruiters look at your own commitment to these issues and this agenda. And so we need to be able to see in your interview um, and you articulating whether it's in your written documents or verbally, what are your values? How are they aligned with our mission? And how does your passion and commitment to making a difference around these, these impact issues play out in your day job and in your personal life? So um, I think that's that. So there's two sides to why values are so crucial and to mapping those early on in your process. Yeah, I appreciate you kind of laying that out. I also think that tip about talking to ex-employees is amazing. <laughs> um, I feel like everyone should do that. Um, so one of my last questions for you, now that the book is out in the world, I'm curious about what's the life you hope it has outside of you? <laughs> oh, that's a great, I love that. I love that it will have a life outside of me. <laughs> I hope it, I hope it does. It's its own thing now. It's, it's, uh, I said, it's like giving birth to a child and writing a book and then Joel agreed with me. Um, it's quite an undertaking. And now I do feel like it has a life of its own. It's out there um, communicating with people and giving people the empowerment that they need to be able to really break this process down for themselves into baby steps so that they can achieve what they what they really want. So I guess in terms of the life I hope it has is I hope that um, readers are able to see its sustainability of the book. In other words, a lot of the tools and tips that I've put into this book are timeless. Um, so they are going to be able to tap into this now. Yes, some things will get dated in terms of some of the statistics and some of the market intel. But generally, you know, I would say out of the 14 chapters or steps in the book, you've probably got at least 12 that aren't going to be very dated and that you can apply over the lifetime of your career. So you can keep tapping back into these tools and reminding yourself. So I guess in essence, that means I hope it's a careers classic in some ways that people can still use um, into, you know, multiple steps or changes that they might do for their own career. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've talked about the book. I'm curious if you can share with listeners, how can people get the book? Well, they can go onto my publisher's website, which is www.cogan.com. K-O-G-A-N page, P-A-G-E, all one word, dot com. And they can type in my author discount code for my Green Biz listeners to get 20% off. And the code for that is K-O-G-A-N two zero. So if you want to get a discount, it would be coming from the UK. So it might be a little slower than buying it on Amazon.com. But you can buy the paperback, the hardcover, and the ebook also, or the Kindle version on amazon.com or amazon.co.uk. So feel free to leverage the discount if you don't mind waiting for it uh, a few a few more days to arrive in, in the mail. Awesome. Well, I hope folks pick it up. Thank you, Shannon, for coming on Green Biz 350. Thank you, Diona. Great to be here.
that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We keep adding new ones and we publish, uh, I think, seven weekly newsletters now. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters. Learn more about them. We love to hear from you. You can send us your emails on questions, comments, tips, or anything else, recipes, maybe, uh, 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.